In your 2016 publication, Refugees, Terror, and Other Troubles with the Neighbors, you argue for collective action capable of addressing the large flow of refugees into Europe, one that would establish reception centers proximate to the core of the crisis, the organized transportation of those registered... By the army that, where I got attacked. That army should be mobilized to do this. Right, and, and Frederick Jameson recently published the book on, on, mobi- yeah, on mobilizing the army. I'd like to hear more about that. And so the redistribution of the, the refugees to possible sites of resettlement throughout mm. Europe, right? So this would be a collective organizational effort, right? So you also make the case for the establishment of a minimum set of norms that would be obligatory for everyone without fear that these norms would appear Eurocentric. Within these limits, you argue for the unconditional toleration of difference and different forms of life. So if, as you write, most of the refugees come from a culture that is incompatible with Western European notions of rights, who do you think will decide on the bundle of rights and norms that would be applicable to all? And what organizational body will coordinate and execute this logistical task of resettlement? Lastly, what role do you envision states, the traditional nation-state, playing in the global coordination and organizational effort. My first point is that I'm totally opposed to this idea that in our neoliberal times the role of the states is less and less important and so on. I think states are more important than ever. Because, for example, if 100 years ago you wanted to establish a company, you basically just needed the state to guarantee the rule of law. Today you have education, ecological measures, and so on and so on. And especially with refugees, we see how even nation-states are not enough. We desperately need a transnational, larger, big organization. I think that the left should stop with that horror of there is two things are passé. They belong to 20th century, we know the Stalinist really existing socialism, and also the good old, it was good as long as it lasted, today it no longer obviously works, the good old welfare state. That's over. But there is a third dream which still persists. The dream of this anti-representative local democracy, you know, people organizing directly their life, coordinating it. You can call this a communal life, local democracy, whatever. This will not do the work. It is more and more clear that this is the first myth we should Abandon. I had friends in Venezuela, other places, even in Spain, they have cooperatives. But you know, f- to have a good cooperative or local communities which work, there must be a very efficient state behind which organizes water, electricity, health, education, and so on and so on. So when people ask me, what's my political ideal? I shamelessly like to say more alienation. Are we aware that precisely if we want to enjoy this local life, locally democratic, many things has to happen, has to function beyond our, outside our visibility. And this is especially clear at the level of ecology. Listen, I don't believe in this ideology of making us local people feel guilty and then don't just criticize what did you do about it? Did you recycle your Coke cans? Did you set aside or paper to be recycled and so on and so on? Of course we should do this. But I think this operation of A, making us feel responsible individually and then at the same time offering us an easy way out. Basically the message is do properly your recycling, buy some stupid organic apples and so on and you did your duty. That's not enough. 
In what is happening now, mega acts will be sooner or later required. Like a good friend of mine, the theorist of, of catastrophes who teaches at Stanford, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, was in Fukushima two days after that earthquake and tsunami. And he told me, you know that for one day, Japanese authorities were in total panic because it looked as if they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people. How do you do this? Who will organize? So we will have to move even beyond this organization. That's the first myth of the left that should be dropped. The second myth is this leftist pathetic admiration of big assemblages. Oh my God, one million people there on Tahrir Square, on Geza Square, wherever you want, or in Madrid and so on. That's nice, this collective display, demonstration. But isn't it that what the left is needing today is not so much to organize these big emphatic events, but what I call the organization of what to do, how do you say, after an alcoholic evening, the morning after. You know, these emphatic moments are nice, but they are limited in time. The true social change is for me not this wonderful, we all cry, promise, we, you see people protest, but how will ordinary people feel the change when things return to normal? That's why... I hope our viewers know the movie. I didn't like it. V for Vendetta. You know. You know how the movie ends. The ending. It's the yeah, morning, yeah, yeah. The, the morning oh, after. Yeah. Sorry? Yes. The morning after. Yeah. Just uh, people break into the parliament. The people take over. As I like to say, in an obscene way, of course, uh, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery to see a movie called V for Vendetta Part 2. But what happens the day after when the people take over? Because as I heard on TV in the United States also now, if one is to believe your president, the people took over. No. What I mean is, what measures, what do we want? We see capitalism is approaching a crisis. Ecologically, with refugees, who will control biogenetics, intellectual property, and so on. But with what to replace it? How to reform it? We don't have a vision. That's, for me, what is behind all this. My big desire is this, let's call it, away from these big pathetics of protest, of uh, performances, big to reorganization of the everyday life. So two questions follow. One, I guess, would be, are the existing transnational organizations like the UN and NATO, are they capable of doing this big infrastructural task? I'm here extremely pragmatic. I would say like this, in principle, no, but maybe you never know. Even NATO, I wouldn't write it off Totally. NATO is, we know what it is. But there may be a situation where something like NATO, which is nonetheless a transnational military force, can do some good work. And let's return to your first question, the refugees. It's not that I'm a militarist. My idea of using NATO was not to protect the fortress Europe, but to do the transfer of refugees, in, and I cannot emphasize the importance of this, in an organized way. What effectively happened was a catastrophe when hundreds of thousands were just chaotically walking, even through my country, Greece, uh, Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia. No, Norway and Russia. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, the result was 
incredible profits of smuggling organizations, the estimates are about 10 billions of dollars, plus the incredible rise of local racisms, resistances. And not that I agree with this horror of ordinary people, but my God, I can understand them. There were farmers in Slovenia who literally awakened. There are 2,000 people in your front yard, no organization, and so on. So precisely on behalf of the welfare of refugees. One has to organize things. If not, my God, we will have the anti-immigrant right. Pegida in Germany, Le Pen in France, UKIP in Germany. We will have them ruling Europe. Europe will pay the price of it. All that is good in European legacy, enlightenment, universal rights, and so on, is threatened. Point two, let me go further. When you mentioned human rights, I don't agree and I think this was not what, what Marx meant with this old stupid pseudo-Marxist doxa. Human rights are abstract rights. In reality, they cover up, uh, they privilege secretly, whatever, men of wealth, uh, white men, and so on. Of course, this is true. But from the very beginning, precisely because of their abstract nature, Human rights had a genuinely subversive potential. Look, they began as, of course, human rights, effectively it meant at the beginning the rights of the white people of property, usually men and so on. But it immediately exploded. Mary Wollstonecraft and so women said, why not us? Haiti, the greatest thing, I think, greater, more important than French Revolution, Haiti Revolution. Black people said there, we also want it. And the greatness of Haiti Revolution is that they didn't want any city returned to their roots, Alex Haley roots. We leave this to Hollywood, no? They wanted a modern democratic republic like the French and so on. So I think that we should definitely not just condemn human rights. I'm the first to agree that human rights are often used as a mask to cover particular Western interests and so on and so on. But nonetheless, there is an explosive potential in them. Second thing that you said, uh, this uh, incompatibility of ways of life. I don't mean this in a stupid Eurocentric sense, like we Europeans are more civilized, they are primitive. I'm just saying first that there are obvious problems. Each community has a certain way of life, which is not so much abstract ideology in what God you believe, but which determines these everyday routines, how women are treated, children, relations of authority, and so on and so on. And it is absolutely crucial to prevent tensions, to establish explicit rules to talk about all this openly. The catastrophe in Europe was that the liberal left prefers not to talk about it. If you mention these problems, you are already Islamophobic, racist, and so on. And the result is what? That you get, you know, Marine Le Pen, UKIP, and so on and so on. All I'm saying is, let's recognize that there is a problem here. For example, in Germany, you have thousands of girls every year who escape their family because they fell in love with a German boy or whatever. They want to leave the usual Western, more open, permissive, hedonist daily life. Then, of course, their families want them back. They go to the police. You have to do something here. 
And I just think it would be good to have the rules, to set some limits. Like, okay, you live your way of life, but what do we do if a girl in despair turns to police? I don't see anything racist in it. When you said, but which rule we will establish here? Who decides on the bundles of rights, norms, and values? I mean, I'm trying to sort of situate that position vis-a-vis like a Rawls bundle of rights or Habermasian deliberative democracy kind of bundle of rights that we, you know, it's the continuation of the Kantian Rousseau and the Enlightenment project as to settle, well, that, uh, settle that question once and for all. I don't yeah. want to go into that debate now, but I must say I am, although I'm very critical of Habermas and not Rawls, but end of Rawls, but at this level, I'm more on their side than on the side of this cultural particularism. Like we have all different ways of life and so on and so on. No, I think that the very multiculturalists who demand respect for particular ways of life already argue in a European way, as part of European uh, tradition and so on. And why shouldn't we use this tradition? I'm not abstractly against Eurocentrism because what we tend to forget that those who criticize Eurocentric racism and so on do it in a way which is directly in accordance with the basic principles of enlightenment and so on and so on. I'm well aware of all the horrors that Europe did. But I think that the fact that today anti-Eurocentrism is so popular is an effect of a much darker phenomenon, the decline of meaningful democracy, civil freedoms, and so on and so on. Isn't it clear that even in the United States now in Trump, not to mention Russia, India, China, and so on, a new political form of capitalism is emerging, a much more authoritarian capitalism. This is the true danger for me. We can call it, which is a racist term, I don't like it, capitalism with Asian values or whatever. But, uh, and even we feel this in daily lives because we feel free. If you ask an average citizen today, okay, you feel free if you feel free, but in what sense are you free? It's mostly the freedom of choice. Well, I can read whatever I want. I can travel where I want. I can get a job that I want, haha, here already begins, if you can get it. But my point is, this is not enough in European tradition, and not only European, even other traditions, to define freedom. Freedom for me is not just the freedom of choice within the existing scope panoply of possibilities. Freedom at a more radical level means also to change the very frame. Not just freedom of choice within, because isn't this our basic paradox in the West today that the more we emphasize these intimate freedoms of sexual freedom, whatever, the larger social process is becoming more or less totally impenetrable. Nobody knows what is happening. Big decisions are made by experts and so on and so on. This is what makes me suspicious about all this LGBT uh, um, and uh, separated toilet stuff. Of course, I'm for them. But my God, isn't it that? Those in power are offering this as topics of debate to obfuscate the big economic transnational choices of how global capitalism functions and so on. We don't even debate about that. Without this, we are lost. We are approaching to a new authoritarian society. That's why I disagree with those who claim, oh, with Trump, we are in fascism. It's not as simple as that. Donald Trump as president is, for me, the paradox of, let's call it, liberal fascism. 
in the sense that at individual level, you can buy pornography, maybe even take drugs, whatever. All that is kept. But nonetheless, the power relations are more impenetrable than ever. That's the problem for me. And back to refugees, which is why, my last point, I also don't agree with this unilateral emphasis of humanitarian aspect. Like, oh my God, do we Europeans still have a heart? Hundreds of thousands waiting there. Can we just watch it and so on? I agree we should be more open there. But my God, what we need is a much larger social, economic, geopolitical vision. We all agree that the solution is not just let's open our borders, they all come to Europe. The solution is to change international economic relations, geopolitical relations and so on. And here, of course, Europe is responsible and United States. Like the recent wave of refugees from Syria and Iraq. Let's be clear, without Syrian war, which is war between superpowers fought by proxies, and Iraq occupation, we wouldn't have probably this wave of refugees. It's the same, although it doesn't appear the same in Northern Africa. We can now clearly see that the violent overthrow of Gaddafi, of course he was a despicable person, but nonetheless, was a geopolitical catastrophe. And are we aware what is happening in Africa at a silent, invisible level, like big food companies? And here it's more Arab countries and some Asian countries like Japan who are guilty. They're buying the best tracts of land for export uh, industrial plants and so on, and introducing then chaos, forcing people to flee and so on and so on. That's all I'm pleading for. Don't make it uh, just a humanitarian problem. Approach it as geopolitical and economic problem. If we don't do this, we will just bring this humanitarianism to the end. We will get a chaotic situation where we will all be losers, refugees and we in Western Europe. Maybe we could transition to speaking more directly close to home since we're in California and Los mm. Angeles, close to the border between the United States and Mexico. Um, and, and in your most recent book, you, you've written about the, the figure of the neighbor. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like to ask you a question about the global phenomena of walling and fencing. The proliferation of border infrastructure, both hard and soft, material and immaterial, can be read as either a symptom of the waning influence and impotence of the state, or like the doubling down of state power, its rearticulation and expansion through performances of territorialization and demarcation. Yeah, yeah. Today's refugee crisis, is, as we, we know, throws in a relief the relation of governmentality to sovereignty, troubling the state's sovereignty under pressures of global capitalism. So following the tradition of Thucydides and Hobbes all the way through Schmidt, do you think that state sovereignty still matters? And where does the neighbor, precisely the figure of the neighbor, figure in this, uh, in between the friend-enemy distinction? My claim here is, of course, very problematic for some humanists. You know, it's very paradoxical, maybe. I think we shouldn't idealize neighbors, not in the sense that they are less than ourselves, but for me, true anti-racism is that we admit a basic impenetrability of neighbors. You know, what I fear in this multicultural approach, we, we should open ourselves to others, understand each other, and so on and so on. This can't be done because others don't understand themselves, we don't understand themselves, or to put it in a very simplified way. For me, an ideal non-racist society is not, I'm friends with Iranians, blacks, Jews, whatever, but I live in a big condominium. 
My neighbor is uh, an Arab, and the other neighbor is a Jew, the third neighbor is Latino American, the fourth neighbor is a Chinese, whatever you want. And we respectfully ignore each other. It's wonderful when from time to time miracles happen. You know, like I engage in a conversation with someone and so on, but it's stupid to expect this to go to the end. We need precisely uh, to learn a distance. I think distances are a true respect, because, you know, uh, a true respect is the respect of someone whom you don't like and don't understand. That's the trick in liberalism, as if we have all the time to worry, how do I know what you mean, do I really understand you? No, that's a path to catastrophe, there's, I claim. There, there's, a, there's this lovely line, as, as you well know, from uh, Freud's Civilization Discontents about if the ethic was love thy neighbor as thy neighbor loves thee, then I could subscribe to that. You know, that's what Freud says yeah. as opposed to love thy neighbor. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if, is that the ethic that you, of alienation that you Well, I, maybe, but I would say I prefer another mega stupidity, which, which I don't agree. Namely, uh, I quote it in my book that you kindly referred to. This is the big motto of multiculturalist. An enemy is someone to whose story we were not ready to listen. I explode here. This is the greatest stupidity I've ever heard. So why don't they apply to Hitler? Will you say Hitler was our enemy? Ah, because we were not ready to listen to him. No, those who did listen to Hitler, like Winston Churchill from the beginning, knew that he really is an enemy. The, this is, here I am, not a Schmittian in his specific sense, but Schmittian in the sense that you know, all is not just a miscommunication. There are real enemies. Like here I agree, although otherwise I don't like him too much overall, with George Orwell, who said, forget about cultural respect. The task now is to destroy Germany. Point. We need all the arms we can get and so on and so on. This is my, this is my big problem. So more philosophically even about the neighbor. As psychoanalysis can demonstrate very well, already in the Bible, and good Bible readers know this. I don't agree with Amilo Levinas, but he made this point correctly. In a way, all the commandments are commandments whose aim is how to keep the neighbor at a proper distance. You know what is, for me, the best definition of neighbor at everyday level? Let's say I know you or you know me. Let's say we know each other for years, you think you know me. As such, I'm not a neighbor, I'm your fellow man. The one who is like you, you can identify with me. But then all of a sudden I do something. It can be a great thing, I unexpectedly sacrifice myself, or it can be something horrible, like I beat a child, I squash some animal, whatever. And at that point, you know, you have this experience, my God, did I really know that guy? What is the abyss in this guy? That's the neighbor. That's the neighbor. So again, even in authentic love relationships, I claim, I hate, I very much, sorry to use this stupid pathology, love to be in love. But I don't trust in this total fusion. You know, all great poets knew that. In an authentic love relationship, a distant, the distance must be kept. The other remains an, an abyss for you, which also means an abyss 
for themselves. If we look deep into ourselves, we are dead. Maybe some of the guys who will listen to us like classical Westerns. My colleague Hegelian philosopher Robert Pippin gave along these lines a wonderful reading of the final scene of maybe the greatest Western of all times, John Ford Searchers. You know, John Wayne wants to kill the young girl because she became like an Indian. And then when he sees her there at the end, you see for a brief moment his perplexed face, and then he grabs her and doesn't kill her, brings her home. And Pippin gives a wonderful description of what happens there. It's not that he sees her humanity and so on. It's the moment of perplexion. He sees that she is a neighbor for him, that he is also a neighbor to himself. He doesn't get it. That moment of existential openness is what defines the neighbor. Let's go back to this idea of freedom, um, mm. and we'll talk about the freedom of movement and the freedom of settlement, mm. as, as you discuss in your book. So there you, you write that there is no Norway, even in Norway. And this, you argue, is one of the difficult lessons refugees must come to terms with. Those who mistake the freedom of movement as the freedom of settlement live in an ideological fantasy, for they, unlike commodities, are unable to circulate freely. The problem, as you rightly point out, is that capitalism relies on free labor as cheap labor, mm while also needing to control the movement and position of this labor. In other words, the distribution of, uh, the distribution of bodies as living labor capacity, mm. the virtual pauper from, from Marx, yeah? So my question here has to do with two related words, occupy and occupation. Occupy, as it was used during the protests of 2011. So and I love this, that they didn't uh, uh, try to sell us Occupy Wall Street some bullshit of passive resistance. I like it that they use this verb Occupy, which has this very active connotation. Sorry to interrupt you. Please go on. No, not a problem. As it was used during the protest, the word Occupy suggested a freedom in non-movement, freedom in non-movement. That is, with the literal taking place of public space, the protesters occupied their occupation. So how would you characterize this freedom of non-movement in contrast to the prevailing conception of freedom as movement, of open borders, etc.? My God, it almost sounds that you are, sorry to be so obscene towards myself, that you are, in this last question, almost too philosophical for me, you know? <laughs> but I will say this thing. For me, Occupy Wall Street was just the beginning. They, what matters is not what they demanded, but the very fact that they did it. This was for me the immobility. In the sense that... Bartleby, it's like Bartleby's refusal. Yeah, it's like Bartleby, yeah. Yeah, I prefer not to. It opened up a certain space. But I don't know even if it was possible for them to move further. I debated with hundreds of them. I didn't get even an elementary answer to the question this new version of famous Freud's question, was will das vibe? What does a woman want? Which is, of course, a male chauvinist question. But I think we have the right to ask the protesters, what do you want? They didn't know it. I don't reproach them for that. You know, most of them were, I would characterize them as, with all viciousness, as left Fukuyamaists or humanitarian Keynesians, you know, less corruption, more health care, more and so on and so on. But there are big questions here. Is this enough? What to do? And so on and so on. For me, what we are witnessing today in the United States with the election of Trump and so on is, to put it again in these ironic terms, the end of left Fukuyamaism. 
even the majority of American liberal left, they basically accepted the premise of Fukuyama, which is we found the ultimate form, de facto we cannot think beyond it, some kind of democratic capitalism. Okay, we try to make it as good as possible, welfare, health, education and so on, but that's it. I think that we got the reply now. No, it's not enough, that doesn't work. You know, Trump is a symptom of the failure of this mainstream liberal left. And if we just fight Trump, we are doing what in medicine they call, I think, symptomal healing. You have a serious illness, you just take some pills to ease the pain. But it's not enough. The democratic liberal left has to make a step further. That's why I sincerely admire Bernie Sanders. He did something that was considered till now impossible. What is infinitely important in Bernie Sanders' movement is that he mobilized people who otherwise would have voted and did vote for Trump. This uh, popular discontent and so on and so on. If Bernie Sanders will in the long term fail, fail in his effort to get on his side the bulk of the Democratic Party, then we are condemned to Trump. That's, that's my, my big problem here. No, but you wanted to ask me, please repeat the beginning of your question. It was uh, very interesting. Just the idea, just the idea of um, there's a freedom. We usually ah, freedom, think movement, freedom, yeah. freedom is equated with movement. It seemed like there was something else to, going on with the Occupy protest, the demonstrations, where there is actually the freedom of non-movement, of taking place, of, of claiming space. Yeah, but you know why I like what you said now? Because we have from the beginning this paradox. You know that in ancient Greek already, the word, I think, stasis has two opposite meanings. It means static, immobility, and it means civil war, and so on. Mm, stasis, and it's yeah. something that... From Thucydides, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the nice point is that to begin, the first step towards change is not mobility, it's immobility. Yes. It's, you have to insist on a certain place. But I'm nonetheless adding this is just the beginning. I'm not saying, I'm not simply criticizing Occupy Wall Street. I, I agree with those who claim, although Occupy Wall Street then dissipated itself. Although there were some attempts up from here, I think. Oakland. On Oakland, Oakland, yes. Okay, but you know, this is the big exception, you know. But nonetheless, I doubt if... Bernie Sanders' movement would have been possible without Occupy Wall Street, you know? You shouldn't judge a movement by its immediate result. There's a different temporality at work yeah, with these. Yeah. And Saskia Sasson, I believe, has gone a great length to, to talk about yeah. the way in which mm. that Occupy is, is still a work in progress. It's still, a work. It's still yeah. a work in progress, yeah. yeah. But another thing I wanted to add, when you talk about this uh, right to movement and so on and so on, you know, I, and I say this in my book, and of course I was criticized by many people, even my very good friend, I admire him, Yanis Varoufakis. You know, I support his DM movement, Bring Democracy to Europe, but I didn't get from him a simple answer to an elementary question. He wants more transparent uh, Brussels decisions there, uh, representatives in this Euro uh, European EU bureaucracy should be responsible to people. Yeah, but is he aware that if the decision to what to do with immigrants, the decisions were to be left to people themselves, in the simple vulgar sense of the majority of voters, it would have been much worse for, for immigrants. 
To put it very simply, in most, if not all countries, at least 60 to 70 percent of the people would have been against it. So the first sad lesson is that we shouldn't fetishize democracy in this sense of at least not in this vulgar sense of the majority is always right. What Angela Merkel did when she formulated her famous comp, come, will she, are we aware that she did something courageous in the sense of consciously going against the majority? And she did what a true politician is obliged to do. You go against the majority with the hope that by imposing what you want in the process of actualizing it, you will, as it were, retroactively convert, recreate the opinion. So that's my problem here. Those who, I find it funny how those who advocate opening of Europe to refugees, at the same time advocate democracy, democracy in the simple sense of transparent decisions and so on and so on, uh, don't explain what this means in the recent situation. Again, if the decision would have been left to people in individual nation states, it would have been a catastrophe for refugees and so on. So here I am on the side of human rights and democracy, and, and, uh, Brussels bureaucracy against democracy, at least against democracy, in the sense of simply listening to the will of the majority. Now, uh, Varoufakis's answer to me was, yes, but it's because the opinion of the people is so manipulated. We just need two weeks of really open debate. I think he is utopian here. Mm -hmm. I think that he still has this old, naive, maybe Marxist belief that ordinary people are basically good. We just have to present them with facts. I'm much more a pessimist here. I always like to emphasize, no, people on average, on average are filthy, egotist, hypocrites, and so on. And what I trust a little bit are precisely superficial manners. For example, very briefly, a South African friend told me years ago when there was still apartheid, a wonderful thing happened there. There was some black demonstration and police was dispersing it. So there was a scene, a white policeman with the stick was pursuing, running, running after a black lady, obviously of a middle class because she had high heels and so on. You will see why this is important. And then at a certain point, the lady uh, lost one shoe. You know what happened? Not because of his innate goodness, but because of his superficial manners, how you treat a lady, the policeman stopped, picked up the shoe and gave it to her. And she put it on and then they looked at each other and like, what, should we... Play the game. Now we go again. The policeman was so embarrassed that he turned around and walked away. You know why I like this example? Again, it's totally wrong to read it as, oh, his natural goodness came out. No, what came out was this automatic reaction of good manners and so on. My belief in the great, uh, I think, uh, alcoholic anonymous motto, fake it till you make it. You know, uh, like, like uh, don't, don't mystify the other. You know, I quote her in the book. This is maybe the quote which I like the most in my book. You remember Ruth something, the Jewish lady, 
who was so surprised when, after World War II, she was a Holocaust survivor. She met a Jew who was also Auschwitz survivor and who in Israel was talking about Arabs in a totally racist way and so on and so on. And then Ruth Klieger, I think, was her name. She was even teaching somewhere here at UCLA, I think, even. Now she unfortunately died. And then she said, first I was shocked. My God, that guy went through all the suffering. How could he, he behave, sorry, in such a racist way? Then it did strike her. She said, but you know, Auschwitz was not just a physical catastrophe. It was also an ethical catastrophe for most of the inmates. It is not true that when you go through extreme suffering, this is a kind of a ethical catharsis. You, you survive, if you survive, of course, as a good guy. No, it ruins you from within. That's the most tragic lesson of poverty, exploitation, and so on and so on. They are not saints. That's why I quote in my movie, Preston Sturgis, Sullivan Travels, against Frank Capra. Frank Capra has this, you know, if you are poor, you must be good, and so on. This is such mystification, such patronizing mystification. We live in a time when the disorder of language is increasingly experienced through the disorder of politics. For me, the word deal best crystallizes this disorder insofar as it... Re- you mean deal when Trump when says, Trump I says want to make a deal like deal. running like a big manager? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The word deal best crystallizes this disorder yeah. insofar as it reduces politics to a zero-sum game of winners and losers. Yeah. So what do you think the word deal is doing in the Trump lexicon? But it's... it's uh, you know, Trump has so many paradoxes and inconsistencies because precisely... What he's doing in his actual politics, the way he approaches uh, uh, um, the Mexican immigrants and so on, it's precisely not a deal. And also, for example, there are so many inconsistencies with Trump. For example, it's absolutely crucial. The, in, the inconsistency towards Jews of his politics. On the one hand, okay, although there are some oscillations, he supports Israel. But at the same time, at least people around him, at least some of them, many of them, are anti-Semitic. But I claim this is not a simple inconsistency. This is a tendency, I used the term already 10 years ago, together with some of my Jewish friends, and they thought, I'm crazy, now it's becoming reality. Zionist anti-Semitism. The politics of... You support Jews if they are far there defending us from Arab bandits. But here, no, 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 there are too many Jews, too much influence, and so on and so on. This is an extremely dangerous tendency, I claim. You know who was the first Zionist anti-Semitic politician? I quote him at least in my new book, Reinhard Heydrich. You know that he wrote a text, I quote it in 38, I think, when he says, Jewish people are incredibly capable. We wish for them to have a homeland where they will be totally free to develop their abilities and we should respect them, establish good economic relations with them. We just don't want them here. And then they made a deal. Because of this, they tolerated till 4041. Jews were allowed to go out peacefully if they promised to go to Palestine. They even were allowed to keep some money if they spend that money for German industrial products and so on and so on. But what I want to say is this with Trump. You know what I'm afraid now? Don't fall into what I call John Stewart trap. Just this eternal left liberal making fun of Trump. We will lose this game. 
I'm not saying he's personally not stupid, but I'm just saying that at least for a couple of years, his solution may work. For example, with all his anti-immigrant propaganda, it's already clear now that he's doing something much more tricky. He will deport some so-called criminals and so on, but he will be very careful not to disturb middle classes who still want their illegal immigrants, gardeners and so on, to do the work and so on. It's, and it's the same with many other, maybe he will, with many other of his projects, maybe for some time it will work. To put it simply, but for me, a true one of the true dangers of Trump is the let's call it disintegration, regression of public morals, of how you are allowed to speak in public. And this is not just Trump. This is a general regression. For example, can you even imagine 10, 15 years ago that we would be allowed to? even debate about torture. Now it's a legitimate topic of debate. Here I am for dogmaticism, as I always emphasize. For example, let's take rape. I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to argue why rape shouldn't be tolerated. A society where somebody who, for example, brings out the terrible vulgar argumentation, you know, women really want it, they just out of false shame protested, but blah, blah, blah. I don't want to argue with such a guy. I want to live in a society in which when somebody talks like that, he's simply dismissed as an idiot or whatever. We should be dogmatics here. And that's what worries me today, that this good side of dogmaticism, in the sense of certain things were simply not tolerated. They are tolerated... They are tolerated again. Even public decency, the tragedy, if I may use this ridiculous word, of Trump is that even when he likes to celebrate good manners nobility, he does it in a totally wrong way. Like, I don't know why it impressed me so dramatically a month or two before elections. Maybe you remember he was praising Melania to demonstrate <coughs> what a refined lady she is. She said, I don't want to use that word F, not the FF, another F, I will use the more noble. She said, in all years of living with her, she, he, sorry, she didn't hear her even once making the flatulence sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you know what's the problem? Even to take talk about this public is a vulgarity. He, you know, that's the paradox of Trump. He didn't see that at that point he was vulgar because the point is not you don't do it. The point is we simply, out of decency, don't talk about this in public. Again, it's not just Trump. It's incredible how the same thing is happening uh, all around. What was still now a matter of this, you know, private conspiracy theories uh, from enclosed circles is now becoming part of public discourse. For example, wasn't it said, you may remember when Netanyahu proposed that totally crazy theory that it was really Palestinians, that uh, Husseini who suggested to Hitler Holocaust. I mean, there is, uh, Hitler met him once, Hussein, when Holocaust was already in process. And there is no document that this really happened. But Netanyahu quoted it as a fact. Or, for example, uh, and I'm taking Jews who are top people, intellectuals, and so on. You know what happened half a year ago? I was shocked. 
in the Middle East, the chief religious authority in the army claimed that it's in accordance with sacred books that when an army occupies an enemy territory, soldiers can rape local girls. You know who said this? Not some ISIS guy. The chief rabbi of the IDF, of Israeli Defense Forces. Of course, Arab countries are probably doing the same. But what I'm saying is that can you even imagine such a statement 10, 15 years ago? We effectively live in an era of regression. And I think that since I trust in Hollywood, (laughs) that in a way even Hollywood knows it. That's why we have this obsession of Hollywood with these dystopias, you know. Effectively, if something will not change in our entire socio-economic outlook, we are approaching a state which is of things which is the one depicted in, I don't know, Elysium, Hunger Games, and so on and so on. Even Hollywood knows it. This is our future. I'd like to return to uh, this, uh, the, the idea of the human that we've already briefly talked about. Human like human rights. Hu- yeah, yeah. Throughout your writing, you've drawn our attention to the shortcomings of the concept of humanity, which upholds our notions of human rights and humanitarianism. Mm. The universal human dimension, you argue, must be sought beyond sympathy and understanding, beyond the world human level, mm. at the level of the inhuman, that is, at the level of the neighbor. Two questions follow. Hmm. Is empathy a properly a political emotion? And if humanity is a troubled concept, is there an operative term that you would replace it with? First, uh, empathy. Let's be clear. I'm not an idiot. Of course, we should use empathy. I'm just saying, and we clearly see with refugees and so on, it's not enough. I mean... When you meet a true foreigner, it's a fake to claim I can have empathy with him and so on. They are real foreigners. And the problem is to respect them as such. So empathy, it happens. It happens and they are wonderful. These moments of sudden communication. Although even here, my position is not acceptable for many politically correct guys because I like to emphasize what may appear, but it's not racist jokes in this dimension. Listen, I remember when I was in China, we went through all these disgusting literals, oh, I respect your culture, blah, blah, blah. But then you know how we became friends. I told them a dirty joke, they told me a dirty joke, and so on. It's incredibly helpful when it works. I'm not saying this is a universal rule. I'm well aware that obscene jokes also play a crucial role in racist regimes. You know, they are also a form of domination, humiliating the opponent. But like these are my fond memories of the old Yugoslavia before everything disintegrated into civil war, national wars. I remember when I met my friends from other republics, a Serb guy, a Montenegro guy, and so on. It was our ritual always to begin to tell each other dirty jokes, not so much racist in the sense of I tell you a joke about your nation. But we were competing who will tell a a more nasty joke about one's own nation. Each nation in ex-Yugoslavia was identified by a certain racist cliché. We Slovenes were misers, Montenegro people were lazy, and so on. And we all 
assumed this cliché with pleasure making fun of it, you know. Like, for example, a Montenegro joke. Sorry for repeating it. You know, Montenegro, you should know to understand, is also an earthquake country. How does a Montenegro guy there lazy, remember, masturbate? He digs a small hole in the earth, puts a penis in, and waits for the earthquake, because they are even too lazy to do the gestures. And it was such a pleasure. We were immediately friends doing this, you know. There are, I totally admit it, magic moments of miracle of communication, like all of a sudden we recognize each other. But they are rare. Don't expect too much for, from it. Again, the really difficult thing is to relate to the other precisely insofar as he, she, it, they remains a neighbor. I don't believe in this saying that Ultimately, we are all humans, we are all the same. No, this is, this can cover up the worst racism and violence. Like I remember when I was in Israel, all media reported on a story which I found pretty disgusting. A special unit of Israel anti-terrorist forces violently in the middle of the night broke into a house which the father of the family was a suspected terrorist. The father was not at home. It was only his wife and a couple of small children. Of course, when soldiers suddenly break in, a small daughter, five, six years old, started to cry, and her mother called her, Sarah, come here. And one soldier discovered that he has a daughter with the same name. And then cameras were there, went to mother. You see, I also have a daughter with the same na name. This why I don't trust this beyond all political differences, we are the same people. No, we are not. That's why we need political solidarity and so on. I got lost, so go back and... Oh, just the... No, it's not lost at all. It's just the idea of, is there something that, you know, the, this, the, the concept of human is so troubled in the sense that it, it, it's... Schmidt goes that length to talk about, you know, the reason that humanity is not... Uh, a useful political category is... Ah, but it still is for two reasons. First, the term humanism is for me too much identified with this empathy and so on and so on. But I believe in human universality. That's, that's why I even uh, believe in human rights as opposed to citizens' rights. Citizens' rights, it, Marx was way too quick here when he dismissed human rights as the right of the bourgeois individual. No, citizens' rights are rights that you get when you are in a certain community. Citizens' rights are usually a matter of customs, political... But it's a great European idea, very good for anti-racism. When you insist that above being citizens of a particular country, we have a certain inalienable human rights, right of speech, freedom, and so on and so on. It means simply that the particular culture to which we belong, into which we are born, shouldn't set the ultimate standard. Is, is the right of place, the right of home, is, the, is that a universal human right? Or is that a right of citizenship? And uh, that's the problem. How do you relate the right to have a place with the right to move. Like, uh, you know, this is an open question. There is no simple answer. That's why I'm skeptical about those who claim, you know, like we in Slovenia were a little bit shocked. Thousands of everyday average for some time, four to 10,000 immigrants a year ago passed through Slovenia. And uh, 
They were interviewed by journalists, you know, like, do you want to stay here? Where do you want to go? And we were a little bit annoyed because, you know, most of them replied, no, we looked around, you are too poor a country. No, we want Norway, UK, Germany, whatever. The problem is this one. How far do you go here? Of course, the communist ideal should be you go, you move everywhere. But listen, it's a very brutal, realist question. What should Norway do if, for example, Nor and Norway has only, I think, four, four and a half million people, when another two, three millions want all to move to Norway? Another paradox of these refugee ideologies was that they wanted chaotic freedom of movement. When police tried to register them, they said, no, we are not cattle, you register cattle. But at the same time, they wanted Norway. But Norway is a well-organized welfare state where everyone is categorized up to the details and so on and so on. That's for me the tragedy of refugees. They had a certain idea of Norway. They have to accept that they will not get it in Norway. Also, we should talk openly about these problems. You know, we in Europe like to like to criticize ourselves that we didn't do enough for integration. Here we go back to the neighbor problem, but, and I understand them, it's not a criticism of immigrants. Why do we automatically presuppose that they want to be integrated? What do we mean by integration? Usually by integration, we mean they should be integrated into our society. Do they really want this? Obviously not. They want to keep their way of life. And then again, we have to establish rules. But you see my point. It's a desperate point that precisely to avoid tensions, we have to talk openly about these problems. If we avoid them, we will have anti-immigrant explosions and so on and so on. So yes, in principle, it sounds nice, freedom of movement. But to what extent does freedom of movement also cover freedom of settlement? Which means basically from wherever I come, I can pick up my country and not only move there, because usually they want more. They want the social services of that country then to organize their employment and so on and so on. I'm just saying let's approach this in a rational, organized way. If not, we are approaching a catastrophe. Well, Slavoj Žižek, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today.